So it is October 1st, 2017, and I am in Crown Heights with Topher Gross, and we are going to do an oral history for the New York Trans Oral History Project, which seeks to document the lives of trans New Yorkers as told in their own words. Um, thanks, Topher, for coming through. I'm really excited. Um, I think I'm going to start with uh, if you could tell me a little bit about where you were born and what that that place was like. I was born in Canarsie here in Brooklyn. Um, I grew up in my grandparents' three-family house. So we lived on the bottom, my grandparents lived on the top, and my mom's sister and her husband lived on top of them. Uh, so I always had like family around, and it was like a very cute suburbanish Brooklyn neighborhood uh, that was like very quiet and kind of quaint in a weird way. Um, where did your grandparents always live in New York or where did they come from? My grandparents have always lived in New York. They lived in East New York, I think when they were little. Um, but yeah, they're New Yorkers and their parents came from like Russia and Poland. My mom's parents anyway, came from Russia and Poland or, or I should say great grandparents. Um, but my, that side of my family was always like Brooklyn people. And what about your father's side? So my mom's first husband, who's technically my father, which I also refer to as my sperm donor, since he wasn't good for much. Um, he was, as far as I understand, like Coptic Christian Egyptian. Um, but he was a New York person. I believe his parents and grandparents came from Egypt uh, but I don't know much beyond that and then my stepdad who's been my dad officially since we were in uh, since I was in elementary school his family um, his parents are New York people like Lower East Side New York Jews and my dad's mom came through from Canada um, I guess they weren't allowed in the U.S., and so they went to Canada before they came here. And I believe they were also Eastern European. Oh. The great-grandparents were Eastern oh. European. Do you, do you, that's interesting. Do you have any idea why they wouldn't have been allowed at that time? No, I'm not really sure exactly what the deal was. I should really talk to my dad about this, but, uh, but I just know that, like, his mom came through via Canada which was always very interesting to me. Um, since my dad, I don't think, has ever been to Canada. Um, but yeah, and then, then everybody was like, yeah, Lower East Side and Brooklyn peeps. So what what was Canarsie like when you were growing up? It was, like, primarily, like, white people, um, like, a lot of Italian folks and Irish folks and like a small amount of folks of color. Um, it was a lot of like one to three family homes like directly in my um, neighborhood. And then there were like some apartment buildings further down. Um, it was very quiet. Everybody had a car, except, I mean, not me, I was a kid. Um, 
and it was very safe. Although I had like very protective parents, I joked that I was not allowed out of the gate until I was 13 without adult accompaniment, um, which is not true, but um, it's like super easy to like walk around everywhere. Little kids were like leaving their house and going to the grocery store at like six. Um, and it was like a pretty easy place to be as a kid. Like I didn't really, I guess I grew up in this like very sheltered, sort of naive sense at the time um with like a lot of like not a lot of exposure to like a lot of other things it was like one of those sort of weird um yeah it was like a quiet Brooklyn neighborhood with not a lot of excitement but with like a lot of kids just freely running around the streets with a with with a lot of freedom and okay so both of your parents uh, grew up in New York. What, uh, what did your mom? What did your mom do? My mom was a school teacher. She, um, she worked at actually the elementary school she went to in East New York, um, and she specialized as her career went on in um, reading programs. So like something called reading recovery, and then all these like facets of um, reading assistance for kids. And that's what she did, like, my entire life, whether it was at, like, an elementary school in Canarsie or in East New York or um, her, like, last job before she retired was in Bay Ridge. So she was, like, in the education system throughout. Do you know what school she worked at in East New York? It was 219, PS 219, and then she worked at... um, there was like a very limited, maybe like three year run of a school that um, was like kind of in Canarsie-ish and they had a program of like this Howard Gardner's Seven Intelligences that was like brief lived. And then she worked at 115, PS 115. And then I can't remember the name of the school in Bay Ridge, but. I, one of the reasons I, I ask is because um, in East New York, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, there were strikes at various schools uh, to, uh, on the part of um, African-American uh, communities to try and get more diverse teaching staff. Um, and so I was wondering if, if uh, you know, your mother had experienced that or maybe if, you know, maybe she had, maybe she hadn't, I don't know. She, I don't think, started at 119 until maybe the 80s, the like early to mid 80s. Yeah, so I think she missed all of that. Okay. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, because then, then she was in Canarsie after. So I think, yeah, she pretty much, she missed all of the strikes. Okay, I was just curious. Yeah. Um, so she she sounds very obviously very committed to education. She is totally committed to education. She's like a teacher of the children, Aww. and especially like kids who were um, not ready to read at their grade level. My mom was like very devoted. She thought it was like super important to like like really take care of the kids at the school that she was at and like um, make sure that they were able to like read. And she was. She was like a kind of teacher that like bought her own pencils and pens. You know, there's never enough funding, so she was like that lady that was always like going to buy school supplies for like kids. So it was like very cute. 
And Kent, just on as a random uh, question, you had mentioned earlier the Howard Seven Intelligences. I don't know what that is. Oh, I, th- I think it's I think it's Howard Gardner Seven Intelligences. It's like how people learn, um, and it's you know, spatially, experientially, um, you know, visually. Like there's all these like Seven Intelligences, and the school was like based around. Um, it was a kind of a little pilot program, which I think only lasted from like to gar- kindergarten to second grade or first to third grade as they like added more classes. And then I think it was done. And it was like uh, based around how everybody learns very differently. And so creating lessons where everyone can have a chance, to, like understand and take part in the lesson. So uh, various facets of education, you know gearing people to what how they learn and understand things thanks i i just wasn't sure what i'd never heard the <laughs> the founder of that i have heard of different intelligences but not that i want to say it's howard gardner yeah. but i just oh, I feel people like can that's look what it, it is yeah google it or <laughs> duck duck go it or something <laughs> um and so as the child of a teacher what was your education experience like what was it like for you to go to school and oh I was very obedient um in schools because I was like oh these teachers all know each other my mom's gonna hear about everything um I was like an early adopter of reading as a kid so um like I can't remember if I was at a third grade reading level in kindergarten or more but like I loved to read and I did not want to get in trouble so I did all the things that I was supposed to do (laughs) school but yeah it was like important as like the kid of a teacher to like listen to the teachers and like uh, school was like like very chill and fun as a kid and you went to a public school in Canarsie I went to yeah a public school in Canarsie I went to PS 276 which at the time was like a magnet school for computers Um, so I like I learned how to use a computer very early uh, and learn to type. Um, and it was super cool being like that young and able to be like on a computer. I think we might have had like early, 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 early Macintosh computers, like weird little boxes that they were. Um, so like I remember that being like really cool when I told other kids like I get to like go on a computer. It's awesome. Was this still the floppy disk era? Mm-hmm. Big, fat, floppy disks. Yeah. Yeah, they were, like, gigantic. Did you ever play Reader Rabbit? I did. Also, the typing program with the, what was it, Turtle or something? Yeah, yeah. I remember doing that and playing a lot of um, Swiss Family Robinson. <laughs> I, I really loved Oregon Trail. Yes, Oregon Trail. I would always die. Always die. There's just no... <laughs> Snow would have won that game. Uh, yeah, I always got frostbitten or ate bad berries or. Something. I used to hunt a lot in Oregon Trail. Oh yeah, I, I never really actually. I think did I get killed by a bear? I might have gotten killed by a bear or something too. I was terrible at that game. Uh-huh. Um, so okay, so you're growing up in this like predominantly white suburban enclave of Brooklyn. Your mom's a teacher, you're a pretty obedient kid. What, can you tell me what were some of the messages you were getting about gender or about 
you know, who you are supposed to be in the world at that at that age. I was like a little kid. Mm-hmm. I know I was always a weird little kid. I um, hated wearing dresses, but I wore them anyway. But in like, I, I vividly recall I had this like blue dress with white polka dots and a little red, uh, I don't know, like fake little bow and like saddle shoes. My mom was like really big into saddle shoes and her favorite color is red. Uh, so like, I remember as a kid, like, you know, my mom was like, you, you, you know, this is the dress and, da, 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 and I like hated it. I, have, I definitely was like not thrilled about it. And as a result to like, um, combat the like wearing a dress thing, um, in dynamics of like playing house. I was always the dog or the dad in a dress. Um, So, you know, I guess that says something. Um, And then as I got older, I think my mom realized like, oh, there's no, this this kid. Um, So I was like able to pick out my own clothes and do all these things. But you know, nobody ever really said anything to me in like elementary school of me like wearing jeans or like, skateboarding type shirts or skateboarding type pants or airwalks or airwalks were really cool when I was little now I don't know how cool they are but um but like I never aside from like needing to wear a dress here and there I luckily was never like deterred from dressing more like a quote-unquote boy um and because my grandparents lived above me it was easy to just take my grandpa's clothes so I did that a lot I was never like discouraged for that he was a mailman so I'd wear his like mailman uniform and um and he and I as I got older had the same shoe size ish I was like a hat half a size smaller than him so I would like totally be able to like wear his clothes and nobody was really angry or upset about that so I got very lucky as a kid um until junior high when kids started calling me Pat which was like after the Julia Sweeney character from Saturday Night Live I had that Brillo hair I had those glasses I was like gender indeterminate uh for a lot of that like portion of my life um but other than that you know taunting a little bit here and there people were just like whatever it was like a little tomboy kid so thank goodness for like that 80s being like you know bright parachute material and skater type clothes were popular so i got away with i think a lot of things and yeah i remember the pat the pat skit because it was it was this puzzling thing where the joke is that everyone's trying to determine what Pat's gender is, uh, but through this really circuitous way. And I, it was, it was one of these weird. It was a really weird. I don't know. It was very strange. It was a very strange skit, and they would always try and like ask questions about Pat's partner, who I think was named Chris. Um, and there was like never any like gender. They're like Chris and I went to the whatever, and they're like, "Oh, Chris, what what Chris wear to this thing? Clothes, you know." Like it was very like uh, everything was indeterminate. Everything was gender neutral. Everything was like uh, questioning. 
uh, of this person's like very existence, which in some weird way, like I very much identified with, but also was like slightly offended by um, when people called me that. But it made per- I mean, it made perfect sense. Like if I showed you a picture of Pat and I showed you a picture of myself at that age, I mean, aside from like, you know, I had 36 double D chest that started in junior high. So even with a 36 double D chest, um, in like junior high, I was still called Pat. I mean, it was padding, you know? So like that was very much like the time that I grew up in, but you know, able to hide it under like skater shirts and like OP shorts, you know, that was like the eighties and nineties. And so when, when did you start sort of having some feelings around, uh, I guess, your own orientation or um, that you might be gen- you might identify a little bit differently with your with your gender, not necessarily language around that, but when did you start having? Oh, geez, I think like when I was very, very little, just like the clothing choices I gravitated to, the fact that I like, you know, I hate to be like the gender stereotypical thing, but I'll, you know, given the choice, I was like totally a rocker Ken guy over a Barbie guy. I was totally like a, um, a G.I. Joe Lego kid. I preferred the like, quote unquote, traditionally masculine toys. I mean, I had dolls and things, but my doll choices were always like boy dolls or um, animal dolls where you can kind of like pick their gender and in any sort of like house situation I was always like the dad, Ken, you know, Bub, Steve, the guy on the motorcycle. Um, So I think like from a very early age I very much identified along with like the masculine people, the like little boys. I generally had a lot of boyfriends, like friends that were male identified people at the time, um, but also like sought out the like coolest, prettiest girls um, are the people that I found like most attractive who are like mostly ladies. Um, so I always like chilled with the very pretty ladies, but mostly because I wanted to be with them, not be one of them. And then wanted to like be one of the boys like continuously as like an elementary school kid. I would, um, redraw images in like Sears magazines or, you know, any other magazines with what I would like my face to be as a kid, like continuously. And my mom would always be like, why are you always drawing boys? And I was like, oh, I really like them. But it was truly just like me drawing myself into these like male magazines. So from from like quite an early age, I want to say like five or six, I think I realized that I was I was not like all the other kids, like all the other girls. And so, okay, so when you you got into middle school and then high school, were you still in Canarsie? Yeah, I didn't leave Canarsie until 1995 when I was going into my senior year of high school. My parents moved, decided they wanted to move to Staten Island. Yeah, so I commuted back and forth my senior year from Staten Island to Midwood High School. And then my mom would go to Canarsie to teach and then would pick me up on her way home. Wow. Or I would, like, stay at a friend's house. 
So can you tell me a little bit what, what, um, about like what you did for fun at that time? In junior high? Yeah, in your... Well, as a kid, I was like, I was, because of like the joking about being sheltered, which was like kind of true and not true, um, I was like the good kid and people, when they would go out and do things that their parents would not approve of, would say that they were, say that they were staying at my house. Because the grosses would never let, you know, I was such a nerd. Um, So, like, I would, um, I played with Legos a lot. I played with the younger kids on my block a lot. Um, I was never on a sports team. I tried piano and hated it. Um, I would play, like, video games. It was, like, around the time of Sega. So I played a lot of Sega and Nintendo. And it was the time I think when everyone was playing outside so I played a lot of stoop ball um and box ball which is like you you get like four squares or two squares in the sidewalk and like I don't know had to do with like a bounce here and there I don't know I played a lot of like weird ball games um and kickball and things like that that's like I drew a lot as a kid um did that was like pretty much what I did for fun we'd like walk around the neighborhood and um go to the park and again it was like so super like mellow there that like we can just do whatever we wanted and we had like a certain time we need to be home and that was that you know um so it was a, a weirdly idealistic childhood in many ways of like I had a lot of freedom but my parents were definitely, like, not as, like, I don't want to say open, but, you know, they were definitely, like, a little helicoptery compared to, like, my other friends. And so when you moved to Staten Island then, were you, was that, like, an hour-long commute or what? Yeah. Two hours or how was that? My mom would wake up at a quarter to five every morning. I would wake up, like, 20 minutes before he had to leave. Um, and then we were driving in the morning. So my mom, I had class. I had to be at class at seven some days because I was like taking AP bio. So I would get dropped off like a little before seven. And then that would pr- probably be like an hour commute. And then depending on my mom was done somewhere between like two and three or whatever. And if there was days where I had nothing, I would go home with her. Um, and if not, I would, like, stay at my, a couple of my friends' houses in Canarsie. I spent a lot of time, like, not at home because it was just easier. And so, okay, so that was your senior year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when when did you start, like, sort of ha- experiencing, like, a crush or having that kind of... Oh, man. I think, like, in elementary school, I totally had a crush on this one girl... Um, super into her. I thought she was very pretty. Um, I spent a lot of time hanging out with her. We were really good friends. Um, and oddly, she was like, I would say she was like my best friend in many ways. She was like one of my, had a lot of crushes as a kid, but she was like one of my crushes. And I would like stay at her house and we would play like boyfriend, girlfriend. And I would, um ride on her stationary bike and pretend it was my motorcycle 
And then we like kissed a couple of times. Um, and that was like elementary school, junior high. And then she called me a lesbian. And then we never really spoke. We had like animosity at like bar and bat mitzvahs as kids. And we just like stopped speaking. And that was like when I like sort of realized like, oh shit, I really like this girl. She's not like a lawyer or something. We like f- sort of found each other for like two minutes on the phone once in college. <clears throat> and then I never talked to or heard from her. Yeah, it was, like, super weird. But I had, like, a crush on this, like, other girl, a couple of girls in junior high. Um, I would, like, oh, my God, she was so cute. We were in um, drama class together, and she had, like, a best friend. And actually, we all went to high school together, oddly. Uh, But I was like, damn, these girls are so pretty. I want to do all the things that they do. But I was not, I could never get in there. I was always, like, the person that was, like, friends with all the people, but, like, those girls never really, like, looked at me beyond, like, hanging out as friends, which was a bummer. Um, And then I, like, totally crushed out on dudes. Like, I had this one, these two boys, actually. They were, like, my best friends in elementary school, and I thought they were so cute. And my mom really thought one of them was really cute. He had really beautiful eyes. Um, But... I see him on Facebook, too. Like, he is, like, a dad now with, like, three kids. And I can't find the other kid. The other kid I really was, like, my best friend. He was, like, the first person I, like, made out with or, like, touched body parts in the junior high school book room. Wow. Yeah. Who knows where the hell he is. Wow. So, okay, so in your high school, what what was your the size of your graduating class? Oh, I think we were maybe 925. Something like that, yeah. I graduated Midwood High School in 1996. Um, I might have been, like, one... I think I might have been, like, 125. I don't know. I was, like, smart, but I went to school with hella smart. Hella smart people that were, like, Westinghouse scholars and, like, went to fancy-schmancy schools. Um, But, yeah, our graduating class was really huge. And I, I realized in high school that two of the people that I really looked up to were like softball lesbians that were together and totally out and years later ended up like some girl that I met on like AOL online was the roommate of one of them at Wagner College and so we caught up again and those two girls were still together and it was like amazing and I was like do you know that you were like kind of my only lifeline in high school I, I saw you to two of you and I was like oh my god like those that those are my people um that was like a very sort of like full circle transformative thing so there were not many like out gay people in my school there's one person who's like quote in the yearbook was yes I am which was the uh, name of an album from Melissa Etheridge. Um, and that person is like still my like friend on the internet. Um, and then there was like one out gay boy who um, I'm still friends with on the internet and just moved back to New York. And it was, he was like amazing to me. He had a purse. He would go shopping here in the city at like all these stores. And I was like, man, that kid was like really living his truth. My dad was like, wow, he carries a lunchbox and wears a lot of makeup. You know, like 
It was awesome. It was amazing. He was like a very important figure for me because, like in in high school, you know, it's like you're searching for yourself a lot in high school, and then to see like these people who were like really just being who they were was like so cool. That was amazing to me. And so, would you say these flashes of people in your you know in your high school who were just sort of out in the world this way would you say that those were that was your first exposure to like queer people I mean I think that there were queer people in my life like there was no one out in my family there is no one uh, my my parents had these two lesbian friends um I thought they were very much like um whatever that tv show is Kate and Allie I was like oh those two leaders are like Kate and Allie and I was like well Kind of. Um, but they never said they were lesbians. They never said anything like that they were really together. And then I didn't realize they were together until like junior high. And I was like, oh my God, I can't remember their names. I think one of them might have been named Marcy, but whatever. That is neither here nor there. But I was just like, holy cow. Like, there's two women that were together. They each had kids. Like, it was really awesome to me. And I think that was just like, the people who I was consciously aware of that they were like living together with, you know, their kids. And that to me was like really cool. But I think like because I didn't have any family that were like queer, although my cousins totally knew I was gay. Like I don't remember who aside from like Melissa Etheridge was like out as gay at that time, but they were like, how is so and you know, like how is, who was like a dyke at that time? Um, and that was before Ellen. Yeah, it was way before Ellen. It was like Joan Jett, and you know they're like, "How's Miss Etheridge? Did you get her new album? Did she call you?" Like they knew I was queer before I knew I was queer, and they were only like two years older than me, you know. And I was like, "No, I'm not friends with her. I don't know who that is, but I totally know who that was." Um, you know, like, but I didn't have any like queer role models as a kid. Like I looked to. Like, I remember seeing Crybaby as a youngster, um, and I was like, I am Johnny Depp. But it was actually like, no, I want to be Johnny Depp. Like, I wanted to be Johnny Depp, and that was like, opened up a new world of like, you know, John Waters' queer life. I was like, hooked. I was like, oh, there's my people, like, visibly weird, outcasty people. Hmm. And that was, I think, in junior high. I want to say that was like my, my revelation in junior high. That's cool. Wow. Okay. So, and also we're talking about this is before the internet. And I think this a lot of people don't understand. Like, um, this is night. We're talking 1986 or 89. I think I graduated in junior high. So I graduated, you know, high school in 96. So or maybe I graduated. So that means I graduated elementary school in 86, then then 92 math, whatever, doesn't matter. It was like way before the internet. And so there was no way to access queer people. There was no way to like search on the internet and find like people that think like me or people that are born this and want to be this or think they're this or, you know, I didn't have access to any of that until like, like around 1996, 1995 or 1996, I think we had the Um, And that's when I discovered a lot of things like live journal and AOL chat groups and um, had had no idea about gay stuff, queer stuff at all. 
And so after you graduated high school, what did you do? I went to college. I went to the College of Staten Island because they had a good pre-med feed-in. Um, and and sort of like realized I was queer in a way when the internet happened um, and I was able to join like a queer, whatever the queer group was at the time. Um, and yeah, I was like a pre-med student for a little bit until organic chemistry and it made me want to die. Uh, and then I switched to English writing and I was um, introduced to a lot of queer stuff and feminist writing from this woman, Judith Selbaum. And Sarah Shulman was one of my professors. So I, it was like the time of rent and people in trouble. And um, I learned a lot about like, you know, like Judith Butler and um, all of these other, like Annie on my mind. I don't know if you've read that. It's a very like New York lesbian book, like young lesbians finding themselves book. Um, and I think like I really came into my own around that time when I was able to like explore gender and sexuality and like the more like far reaching ways. Like there was this like bookstore here that I found when I was in college um, that I can't remember the name of, but it was like a big deal bookstore, like a queer bookstore. Um, and then like discover this like whole world of like, oh my God, these are queer people. This is what, this is who I am. Oh, I'm a trans person. Oh, noted, you know? Um, like college was like really eye opening. It's when I discovered AOL chat rooms for like lesbians and met people that I became very, very close with and friends with and um, found my like high school idols. Uh, again, because of it, um, and where it was able to like really be supported by a network of people who are like all about. They're like, okay, cool. We're all weirdo queer people. Um, we're all like very different, but here's like a supportive group of friends. Like, live your truth. So it was like, even though Staten Island was not an easy place to be, it was kind of like an awful place to be. Um, I was really supported by the people around me, which was like nice to have on like a weird island mm. that is like oddly far removed from the city. And can you tell me a little bit uh, like where on Staten Island did your family live and what was the community like there? So my family moved to um, like Bloomingdale Road, which is fairly far out, like right before Tottenville. It's like Huguenot, Woodrowy kind of area. Um, in 1995, when we moved there, across from the house, like it was, there are all these like newer like little houses, and my grandparents sold their house in Canarsie, and everyone moved as a unit. So like my uncle came from Jersey with his kids, and so there were um, like rows of houses, and we were outside of a cul-de-sac, and across from us was just forest, like weird pheasants and rabbits would like chase our dog. Um, but there were seven houses in a row and like our one little row, you know, before driveways. And like, it was my grandparents, my grandma, my grandpa, then it was like a next door neighbor, a next door neighbor, us, a next door neighbor, my mom's sister and her husband. Um, and then my mom's brother and his wife and their kids. So seven houses in a row and we had four of the seven houses were my family. So again, sheltered life, couldn't throw a party because everybody knew if people were in your house, 
Um, and it was, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. We moved on the day I was supposed to take my road test. So I got everywhere on like the bus or cabs. And on Staten Island, there's only one train and it just runs from one side of the island to the ferry and back. Um, and so it was like weirdly isolating, um, until I found like the internet and made friends where people had cars and things like that. Um, it was very weird to be there from Brooklyn because in Brooklyn you could like walk everywhere. I didn't take the train as a kid though. I didn't take the train until we snuck on the train in in high school. Um, so it was weird to be in an isolated place where, uh, I didn't really know anyone except for a couple of people I had met at camp that summer. Um, and um, it was very like family oriented until um, until AOL chat groups allowed me to find other dykes on Staten Island. And so tell me a little bit about what your college experience was like. So I went to the College of Staten Island, which is a CUNY, and um, it was weird. I mean, it was... Nice. Was it free? No, I had to pay. It, was, it wasn't that expensive. I mean, this was like 2000. So I was there from like, oh, I graduated in 2000. So it was like not that expensive comparatively to other um, colleges. And it was, um, it was okay. There was like a lot of like very Staten Island kind of towny people. A lot of, um, like I call them like Sonic heads, like Sonic the Hedgehog haircut. Um, there's like a lot of guys like that who had like a fade up and then just like a lot of gel. So it looks like they're a porcupine head. So there's a lot of that. Um, and I was like a pre-med student being in like 500 level classes as a freshman was really weird and interesting cause a lot of people were older than me. Um, and I was, it was like very chill and then um, I found out that there was like a gay club and I like secretly went to the, like I didn't tell my parents, but I like went to the like gay club and like met someone who ended up being my like partner for a couple of years. Wow. And he also transitioned. So like after, way after the fact. So that was like kind of awesome that I found him. And then I found like another person who was like the first bisexual person, officially bisexual person I had ever met. So like in many ways it was like a really good experience. Um, I have like a couple of my, my best friend I met there and she was also like out as bisexual. Um, and we did a lot of like poetry writing because when I switched to English writing the whole world opens up you're like there's gay people here there's like queer people here you're writing poems about hooking up with a girl like it was definitely like a good place for me to be and manageable I think being like a smaller school or rather you know like not a giant college like a way college so it was like a good college experience in many ways but it wasn't like special in any way you know so when did you um start to think of yourself as trans or I think I always knew that I was trans like I had this vision of myself as like a kid right right but I didn't like I mean artic- I mean in a more like um, oh yeah in a more concrete con- way conscious, not conscious but like when did you sort of connect with this idea of like I'm transgender I need to transition was that in college more or I thought about it in college but I was kind of like whatever I, that's not a thing 
you know, where you're like, oh, that's not a thing. I'm just going to live my life as like a really bad butch dyke. Like the worst. I was not a good butch. Um, what is it? What do you mean you weren't a good butch? Oh, my God. Like at the time, you know, butches were like tough, handy. Um, I, I had like the um, the like chivalry part of the butch stuff down, you know. Um, but I was like, couldn't play sports. Just... Like I looked the part, but I could, was not the part. I was the part, like, in 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 many ways, just not the tough part. And I had thirty six double Ds, so I was like the butch with the boobs. Um, and I, you know, reading about stuff in college, I read, um, you know, I think like my first experience with like uh, sort of varying gender identity was like Stone Butch Blues which was like really upsetting and transformative to read. Um, and I believe Sarah Shulman, I think, might have been the one that assigned that, or Drew the Cellbound, one of the two of them. Uh, and that really changed me for like a lot. It started like getting my head going. I'm like, wait a minute. So here's this like butch person who's like definitely a tougher butch than me. Um, <laughs> And, I, mean, I mean, she's. That's a very high bar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this badass person that like lives their life as who they truly are and dealt with like horrible, horrible, horrible things, um, and you know was able to like still exist was like really powerful to me. Um, and I think like uh, that was like really a big deal to me and so like definitely in in college I was like much more aware of trans people and kind of had kept it in the back of my head and then in 2000 I got a job in the city at this publishing company and on company time um I would like look at life journal and found like trans people and ended up meeting this guy this trans guy um who I became really, really, really best friends with. He was, like, a big dude. Um, he, like, came from the West Coast. He had been on T for a while. He was, like, he was, like, my big dog. I was his little dog, and I, like, learned so much about, like, queer identity because of him, and he was the kind of, like, trans guy who was, like, raised out on Long Island. He can, like, build things and fish and um, cook and... Um, fix cars and smoke weed and um i really admired him he was like a very transformative no pun intended person in my life and he was always like dude you're gonna you're gonna transition before you're like 27 or something he and the girlfriend i had at the time were like you're gonna transition and i was like i'm totally not no i'm not i'm a dyke like that's how it is you know i i recognize that obviously that was what I wanted, but I was very much concerned with my family. And so I was like, I'm Butch Dyke, this is how it is, and I'm not going to transition, I'm totally not a man. Um, I wasn't like a lesbian separatist or anything, but, you know, I think my fear at the time was like my family. I was like, I can't become this man because I will lose my family. And they were okay with me being a dyke. It took a while, they were fine with it, but like, I don't think I can like, 
you know, even living out of their house, you know, I felt like it wasn't something that I could do because I was like a fear of being like rejected by my family. But and he, you were, you it sounds like you had a pretty close family. Oh yeah, I mean, every, yes, it was super close with my family. I mean, I lived at my parents' house until I graduated college, which was like not ideal. I basically kept my stuff there and slept out at everybody else's house, especially this like one sporty dykes house. We hung out there a lot. And then, you know, my friends were like, also went to college on Staten Island, but were in away dorms. Um, and other friends went to college upstate or in the city. And so I spent a lot of time not at my parents' house so I can like live my like, you know, live my life in a, in a closer to the city sense, you know? So like, he was like, you are totally gonna transition and you just have to be who you are kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and that was like really important because at the time that I started reading a lot more books about like trans people and gender nonconforming people, like whatever I could get my hands on of like subversive queerness, um, that was like a big deal. But like because of the internet, it like changed my life and I was able to find my people, you know, but he was like the first trans person that I had ever gotten close to. We were like inseparable. It was like really big deal for me. And so, okay. So after you graduated, you start connecting with this person. What, what were you, after you graduated, what was your plan for your, uh, for your life? What did you you know, want to do, how did you, you know? I was like a spoken word poet oh. and comedian and um, drag king here in New York. Not a good one, but a drag king. And I, um, when I was working at, at this publishing company, I was just like writing and I had um, I had a, I started a clothing company, a feminist clothing company called New York City Pussy Power. Um, and that clothing company was born out of a performance series, an all women's performance series that started off with seven poets and one girl band, and then grew to be a seven hour long show with multiple performers. It was written up in like Time Out New York and The Village Voice. Um, and I thought, oh, I can just be a performer. My, that's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be a performer. Um, and I like started hosting bur queer burlesque shows called the Red Hots that belonged to the girl I was dating. Um, and I was kind of just like, I'm gonna work this day job and figure out everything else. I was working at Dyke Bars, I was working at Meomics at the time, I was like throwing this weird queer event, feminist event. Um, and running this publishing company, and then the whole time, like, trying to connect with trans people. Um, so can we just pause for one sec? I just yeah. have to use the restroom. Early 20s? Early, my early 20s. Okay. All right, so where we left off, you're in your early 20s, you're trying to be a performer. This is New York in the 90s? Mm -hmm. Late. Late, late, late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. People have a lot of nostalgia for oh, yeah. what New York was like before and, you know, how before gets defined as, you know, changes from person to person. But, you know, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what 
you know, what was it like? What was it like for you? What was at your disposal in terms of like spaces to go to or community activities, events, um, as a young person who's a native New Yorker who identifies as a lesbian and is, you know, perhaps transitioning soon, etc. Can you tell me, describe what New York was like for you at that time? Yeah, there is many, many, many places and parties for us to go to. There's like the Click Club. I mean, it's like all this is like, that stuff is already gone, you know? There was like crazy nannies which is like primarily folks of color really good music and you know a bunch of people that like worked there henrietta hudson's um there was like girl nation there's just so many different if you were like a lesbian with an l or like a dyke with a d there were i was like not really in the riot girl scene although i knew people that were but there was like that stuff too. Um, there was just stuff. Every, literally every night of the week, we could go out. Every single night of the week, there was parties, and um, I worked some of those parties and helped throw some of those parties and events. Um, and it was really like a buffet of things to do and places to go. And there were many more actual bars. Um, to like physically be at like it wasn't just a party that necessarily moved around from bar to bar and it wasn't like you know a monthly it was like a weekly every night of the week you could go to this bar for this t type of dyke and this bar for this type of lesbian and this if you wanted to see like you know women's spoken word you would go to girl salon which I hosted here from, from this woman Janine um, she created an event that was a poetry event at Meomix that ended up also being hosted after me by Robin Cloud, who's like an amazing, um, comedian and she's like kind of a big deal now. And, um, and then there were like all these different kinds of like lesbian parties. There was like a sporty dyke party. There was like, you know, um, it was awesome. It was really amazing. And it was dirty and sweaty and filled with makeouts. And it was really great to be like a homo at that time in many ways. Like, it felt like there were just so many options and so many ways of being gay um, and so many places to do it uh, that it was, it felt really like a heyday. And then you know, comparing it to now, all those bars have closed. There's like, while there's events, I'm sure every night of the week and parties here and there, the the actual like concrete and mortar places to go to are less and less. Um, but at the time it was in, amazing. In your opinion, why do you think that is? Well, I think like lesbian spaces, we're not prioritized over gay male spaces and the money just wasn't there, you know? I think also like the gentrification of New York in general had a lot to do with it, rising rents, um, changes of like the amount of money people make and um, people's priorities have changed over the years too. People get done with it and want to have families or want to leave New York or, you know, 
I think, like, gentrification is, like, a huge part of it, too. I mean, look at the Lower East Side. God only knows how much a bar probably rents out for now. So I think since the 90s, so much has changed um, real estate-wise with New York. And also with, like, women's spaces in general. There are very little spaces for women to be at. Um, Very little, like, women-owned queer bars, you know? I mean, somehow the cubbyhole is still standing, uh, which is great. Um, and Henrietta's is still standing, which is great. But, like, you know, queer bars open up and close fairly quickly here. So I think it was a very different time. Uh, and I'm nostalgic for it in many ways and not in others. Uh, but I think it was fairly easy to be a dyke in those times, even though it wasn't easy in many ways to be a dyke at those times. But it felt like the camaraderie was like really there. Um, and it was like a good time for me to be out. And like, I acknowledge my privilege as like a white passing person who while butch was not terribly butch. Um, so I didn't experience the things that like my bouncer friends did or my other like super masculine friends did at the time. So I think like I, I got away with those days unscathed. And um, can you talk to me a little bit about where you were living at the time? And you were, did you, were you able to survive off of this publishing job? Oh man, that publishing job. I made, uh, it was like my first job out of college. I made $24,500 a year. I made like no money for my Pussy Power events. A friend of mine was the manager of Starbucks. Um, it's closed now, but it was the one that was linked with um, the college on um, whatever. What's the name of that school where you used to be able to go for free? Cooper, Cooper Union. Union. So it was like in a Cooper Union building. So I did that at night. I worked at Miamix hosting karaoke one night a week. I worked at Snapshot doing the door. I threw another party as the years went on. I um, hosted um, different burlesque events. I, you know, I just worked my face off. Um, so I was able to make it happen because I had all these other gigs. And then um, I had like moved out of my parents' house and lived a year in Astoria. Um, until after like 9-11 and then I moved to Brooklyn so I lived on Washington between St. John's and Sterling from like 2002 on 2000 yeah I guess it was 2000 and end of yeah 2002 on so I've lived like in and around Crown Heights but I managed to like one of the parties that I kind of like promoted, which wasn't really a party, but it was Monday nights at Doc Holidays, which was ladies night, which originally they didn't charge. And because I had like a secret mailing list of events, um, we ended up packing the place. So they ended up charging $5 a head for people. But I met a girl there. She was like really attractive. And I went over to talk to her and asked her why she was holding up a pole. Uh, and then we started talking, and I realized I should stop hitting on her because she said she needed a roommate. 
and I um, really wanted a kitten, and my roommates at the time in Astoria wouldn't let me have a kitten at that apartment, and I, like, met her on a Monday, went to see the apartment on the Friday, and was her roommate uh, a couple of weeks after that. So I'm really grateful for Dyke Parties um, for, like, getting me a really amazing apartment that I could afford on my very low salary at the time. Um, compared to like other people so you know while that publishing company didn't pay me enough I had a lot of freedom while I worked there to like host these shows and run this clothing company and I don't I don't know if it's okay that I'm saying this since it will forever be in on record but I had 24 hour access to the building and so I was able to use the photocopier to create programs when we did Lady Fest East, which was like a women's music festival here in 2001. Mm-hmm. 2000 and 2001, I think. And, or 2000, whatever. It was like 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that. Um, and so like that, that awarded me a lot of uh, perks while working there. And they were really fucking cool with my transition, too, because somebody had transitioned before me there. Um, so they were like, okay, they're kind of like, whatever about it. So I managed to, like, yeah, like, eek by um, while working there. I still actually don't know how I paid all of my rent and did all the things. I think it was credit cards. Um, but, but it was, like, a really interesting place. A lot of women were higher up there. No one was out at all as a lesbian except me and this other woman. Um, but everyone else I think was totally closeted, not everyone, but there was a lot of like closeted older ladies. Now, you know, as we know, there's with women only spaces, there have been a lot of issues around trans, uh, trans inclusion. And I'm wondering if you, what has been your experience with that uh, as you were working with these sort of women, women-focused festivals and that sort of thing, if you could speak to that a little bit. I think that because I did Lady Fest East and it came from like a riot girly kind of perspective, that there was never sort of like turfy things around the people that I organized with. Uh, at least none of my close friends were like really trans exclusionary radical feminists. So um, we didn't have to, I didn't really have to deal with that. Um, but also like as a trans masculine person or a person who was like on the masculine end of the gender spectrum, like I remember when Camp Trans started at the Michigan Women's Festival and I had never had a desire to go to the Michigan Women's Festival. It was like not exactly music I was into and I don't camp. So I like to shower. So it really wasn't a place for me, but I understood why Camp Trans happened. And then I, I didn't have a lot of like, a ton of people were not transitioning around my time. So I didn't have a lot of like a ton of trans masculine people here in New York that I could like commiserate with about this. And um, the trans women I knew were a little older than me. So they weren't exactly part of that like scene at the time. So I didn't, I don't ever recall having to like defend trans women in places. Although if given the, time if like given the chance at the time I I was very much like pro trans folk all around so um but I never saw a trans woman get kicked out of 
um, Yamex or out of, I guess Snapshot wasn't exactly like a women-only space, but I never started translating get kicked out of any of the spaces that I was in, knowing, knowingly or aware of them, even bouncing at parties. So, um, but I think like at that time, I found out about trans exclusionary radical feminists, although I don't know if they were called TERFs at the time. I just thought they were like lesbian separatists. So, um, so I didn't really have like personal experience with them, but I'd heard stories and why camp trans existed at that time. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was definitely like older, more masculine, butch dykes were very upset with me for transitioning. Mm-hmm. They, the people who were most angry at me told me that I was a traitor and that I was like, basically they thought I was erasing a butch identity. Uh, I couldn't understand why I was being becoming a man. So there was this like very angry group of folks that felt really betrayed and... Um, upset about that and a lot of girls were like I don't date men so now that you're like a trans man it's not happening which is cool like it didn't really matter to me but um but the anger for a lot of like from a lot of like butch dykes was like really hard because I I am really grateful for those people who are sort of like gender non-forming masculine spectrum people who I encountered that paved the way for me to like be a trans masculine person. And so like in trying to have dialogue with that, that was like very difficult to hear. Um, And that was like really hard at the time. Like people were really, really angry with me as a person, friends with who I was friends with, who were not into me transitioning at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of those people, I sort of realized, um, it was, I think like, the people who were very angry with me about it are d- very different people now, um, but it was very hard to look at those like people that I looked up to, those like butch or masculine dykes that were just so upset and hurt by my personal decision. Uh, and so that was very hard at the time. Cause that was, people would get very angry to my face about it. Like, and also that they would never accept me. So that was like a little tough. Um, but I didn't, I never really, thinking back, like I never really had talks with those people about trans women. And I feel like you know, had I had those talks with trans, about them with trans women, I don't think I would have been able to be their p- friend. So how old were you when this, when you had um, started this process and were getting this reaction? So I started to change my name to, I just started to go by Chris. I was like Christy, and then I... Uh, preferred to be called Chris or Don because my drag name was Donatella Lesbiana, the Don of the Lesbian Mafia. Um, and that's how like, I hosted karaoke as the Don. Um, and, um, and that was like 2003, 2004. Um, and I remember like this guy Ethan threw a party called Trans Am 
Um, and that was like the first, like, I was like, oh, there's like trans, more trans masculine people. It's like amazing. Um, and then I started testosterone in 2004. Also came out to my parents in 2004. And I had top surgery in 2005. All while like throwing parties and um, working at the publishing company. And, um, and yeah, like throwing events. But after I transitioned, I stopped throwing pussy power because I felt like it wasn't my place anymore. And I stopped going to women's only spaces because it didn't feel right. So I stopped. It's sad to stop going to the Dyke March, but I totally stopped marching in the Dyke March and just went as like a supporter. Um, so it was definitely like an interesting time for me. It's a lot of change. So much. So much. I was like, I gotta be respectful of like my spaces because you know, I was very aware that women like fought for so long, for for so hard, um, to have spaces that were theirs, and I didn't want to like intrude on them. Try to be as respectful as possible, especially with more facial hair than some of the bearded ladies I know. So, can I ask how your family took it or dealt with oh, it? Yeah. Do you want to? If you don't want to talk about that, that's okay. But no, I can totally talk about it. So there is the Yom Kippur incident of, uh, I believe it was 2003 or 2004 when I wanted to wear a tie to synagogue, which did not go over well. Like I could wear the suit jacket and the button up, but they like lost their shit over me wearing a tie. I could wear a kippah, but not a tie. Um, and so I was like, oh, this might not go well when I like tell them what's up. So at the time, I uh, created like manila envelopes for my family, like my parents, which included like a letter from my therapist, a printed out letter from PFLAG, um, uh, another article about like having trans kid, um, my like letter of intent, meaning like, uh, you know, I love you guys. Uh, this is like my personal decision. I mean, I think I still have like a packet at the house, probably, uh, where I was gonna like go to Staten Island, my with my um, girlfriend and my best friend, and my friend Richie was gonna pick us up and drive us to my parents' house, and they were all gonna hang out in the car while I did this, um, and that was like. Um, uh, maybe July or August of 2004. Went out there to my parents' house. I looked at the clock and it was like, I don't know, one o'clock or something, let's say. And I like, had my manila packet and like went into my parents' house and I'd gone there with like under the guise of having lunch with them for like my mom had turned 50, I believe at the time. And my dad's birthday was coming up and I like wanted to see them before they disowned me. Uh, that was like in my mind. And my grandma, my grandpa had already passed at the time. My grandma knew that that was happening. She was like all about it. She just wanted me to be happy. Uh, Wait, so you talked to your grandmother first. first? She was the first family member I told ever. She was my best friend. She was awesome. So I told her and she was like, good luck. You know, I'm here for you no matter what. I just want you to be happy and healthy. And I support you in all your decisions. I don't know what your parents are going to say. It's my mom's mom, Edith. Can I just pause and ask what, in your mind, what how, what did you think your grandmother understood from your conversation? Like how, can you explain 
that because that's a different generation yeah she knew she was just like if it makes you happier to um to become a man and make the change i think she said and make the change uh you know i'm here to support you uh you know i don't know how your parents are gonna take it but i i'm 100 percent behind you and you always have grandma here no matter what the decisions no matter what happens you're not gonna lose grandma you know it was like this very sweet like thing of like grandma edith is always like a thousand percent behind you i was like great cool at least i have my grandma but i like totally prepped like losing my family i was like my parents that's it i feel like they were like cool with me being a dyke but like who knows what's gonna happen when i ha- they have to explain to their friends that they have a, a son you know so like um and you're an only child, right? I have a younger sister. She's oh, two my years mistake. younger, who was mad that I didn't tell her first, but I tell my grandma it was important. So she was supportive. My sister was fine about it. And um, I go in there, and I'm like, you know, Mom, Dad, I love you. I want to talk to you. And my mom goes, oh, I know what this is about. I don't want to have a conversation with you. What do you mean you don't know what this is about? And I was like, can I talk to you guys? And my dad comes down. And I stood on one side of the table. And they stood on the other side of the table. And I said, listen, you know, I wanted to come and tell you this. Um, Because they had met my friend, the other trans guy that they loved. My grandma loved him. My parents loved him. And my mom was like, oh, you're becoming like him? You want to be like him? And I was like, yes. And my mom was like, well, I raised a girl. I raised a daughter, and I will not tolerate this. And she took her packet, and she threw it in the trash, and she said, I'm going upstairs. She went upstairs. And my dad, who's like, uh, you know, he's like kind of sensitive, and he was like, I, you know, you made your mother very upset. Um, he's, he pulled her packet out of the trash, and he was like, I don't understand this. And then he started grabbing what was left of his hair and going from counter to counter. My mom's name is Sandy, and he was like, Sandy, why? Why? And then he turns to me and he goes, we let you be a lesbian. Dress how you want. Be how you want. You are not a boy. You know, and like went off around that. And I was like, this is A, it feels like it was hours, that I was there for hours. B, I can't believe this is really happening. This is like the most dramatic ridiculous thing that the man is holding on to what's left of his long balding hair and my mom has already like given up and went upstairs and then he starts crying and she comes down and she goes look what you did to your father and my father like goes upstairs i guess to try and collect him so she goes i think you should leave and i was like okay i'm gonna go so i like you know i was like i love you this is not about you this is about me and like, you know, whatever. And I like left the packets and I left and I went in the car and I looked at the clock and only 15 minutes had passed. And it felt like fucking hours of my life, hours of my life. And uh, I had stopped by my grandma's after I like tried to collect myself in the car and I told her that I loved her and that it didn't go well and that she was like, well, I love you and they'll, they'll work it out. 
And then we went for some retail shopping at the mall. And we went to my best friend Nancy's house. And her parents were a thousand percent supportive. And they were like, we will always be here for you as your parents if you need us. So that was like really fantastic. Um, and so like I had the support of them. And I had the support of like all of my coworkers and all of my friends and whatever. And then... Um, I argued with my dad on the telephone. For some, my mom didn't talk to me for for a little bit. She just couldn't do it. And my dad and I argued on the phone one day. And then he sent me an email, a very long email. And he was like, you know, I think you need to think about this decision. The whole thing, we let you be a lesbian, dress how you want. Like, you want to wear a suit and be a lesbian, that's fine. Like, you want to like girls, that's fine. But like, once you take off, you can't put back on. And he was talking about my chest. And he was like, you need to wait six months. I think you need to think about this. And like, I'm really bad at lying. And I just decided, yeah, totally. I'll wait six months. Meanwhile, I already had a surgery scheduled for six months in California. And I had lied and told them that I was just going out to California for my birthday with my roommate and my best friend. Uh, and, um, and then I had to have surgery and no one, like I should say everyone besides my parents knew. So, like, my aunt and my uncles knew, my grandma knew, everyone. Your aunts and your uncles knew. Yes. No one on my dad's side. Like, I didn't, I don't like my dad's family, so I didn't tell anybody there. But my grandma wanted to have a conversation with the surgeon. I want to talk to this Dr. Brownstein. Because if anything happens to you, I will kill him. I want to talk to him before. I want him to know. I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but, like, everyone knew. Literally, Facebook, MySpace, Friendster. My parents did not know. And my dad's family didn't know, but everyone knew. And that was March 16th of like 2005. I had two top surgery benefits. I had saved all the money. I like had a, like a giant surgery benefit at um, Southpaw, which is now closed. Like another amazing venue closed. Uh, I had it at the Slipper Room. Um, and, and yeah, and I didn't talk to my, didn't see my parents until May of that year so three to six double d is gone nobody said anything and they never said anything to me until i was on the cover of go magazine in like 2010 they'd never seen me with my shirt off they had never asked about where my boobs went they it was crazy like it was like a non-issue i mean they met all the people i dated all my girlfriends they Never really said anything about my beard. Like, it was never a discussion. I think, like, after that, um, after the arguing back and forth, they just got used to it. I mean, my dad would, like, slip now and again. And we would just be like, he's he's having a hard day. Like, I was calling me she, and I'm like, I have a giant fucking beard, man. Uh, and then, then something happened, and they were fine with it, and that was that. Like, that, that cover of the magazine in gold lame shorts and heels, I think, really desensitized them to so much. <laughs> Uh, and then I competed in Mr. Transan, and then my mom was like, I don't know, nothing surprises me anymore. And that was it, like, the end. Like, they never, they never questioned anything after that. They were, like, cool with everything, and they were always cool with everyone. Uh, but I was just like, well, you know, I, I just, like, didn't give them any opportunity to not be okay with it. I was like, well, this didn't go well, but it's going to be in your face forever. And there's nothing you can do about it. So I really, I really pushed them. And they didn't have a choice. They just had to accept it if they wanted to be a part of my life. And they had to accept literally everyone I had ever brought to their house for any holiday. Or, you know, I had a party in, 
um, in Astoria and they were like mixed with a whole bunch of queer people and all these different humans and they were fine. They, they just wanted to know what was in the dip. You know, they're like got to be like really cool, amazing humans. And the internet, I think learning to Google really helped. So I, I was very, 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 very fortunate and really lucky and very privileged to have like a family that um, was awesome. And can I just ask, why, um, why did you go to California to get top surgery Love. instead of doing it in, doing it in New York? Because the surgeon that was here was terrible. And in fact, I believe he ended up losing his license. Um, I can't remember his. So there was only one surgeon that you knew of in New York doing top surgery, and at that time, that one person, he really like, uh, and no pun intended here, like butchered people's chests. And so I went to Brownstein in the Bay, and I paid for it. Like my my health insurance was not going to cover it. I think at the time, maybe only the people who worked for Babeland got top surgery covered, and maybe even not that. Um, but yeah, I paid for everything out of pocket. I had those fundraisers. I like, thank goodness for my roommate's mom allowing us to put stuff on her credit card. Um, and I stayed at a hotel for like 10, 10 nights, 11 days in Union Square in San Francisco. That was like right around Priceline. So I named my price, paid for everything out of pocket or with credit cards. So you didn't, so in terms of your care afterwards, you weren't, you stayed in a hotel. I stayed in a hotel and paid for it straight up. Like, um, I got connected to a bunch of California people from like someone I knew from New York, a friend Little, like introduced me to all these people in the Bay. Um, and yeah, a bunch of people like happened to be out for like a ALA or APA nerdy English conference or something and so I got to see a bunch of people because of it but everything nothing was covered by health insurance nothing was my aftercare was not in a hospital my you know it was like an in and out surgery same day um surgery center um and and yeah I stayed in a hotel it was bananas. I can't, cannot even believe to this day that I didn't tell my parents. I could have died, and they would have like not been the wiser, which I think we never talked about that, but I always wonder if if they were like upset that I didn't tell them because what if something happened to me? But yeah, the Brownstein was like the best option at the time. I mean, there was a surgery called FTM or trans, Transter, Transter, and it was about like all these top surgeries with like grainy cell phone pictures like first edition digital camera photos of people's surgeries and then I saw a bunch in person in New York and I was like that's it Brownstein is the guy I have a giant chest and like I I want it to look as natural as possible and I was very lucky that I don't like keloid or whatever and I was like super anal retentive and careful with how I took care of my scars um, and I ended up with like a really good chest and was very fortunate that, that, that I could make it happen with Brownstein because some of the other surgeries I saw, people were really very unhappy. And I just, like, couldn't stand the thought of, like, looking in the mirror and already disliking what I saw and then to, like, have a, a chest that I had to look at for the rest of my life and having it not be 
what I had wanted. But who knows? I mean, it could have ended up in any direction, even with a really good surgeon. So, uh, but this was like 2005, and there were not many options. When you were preparing to get top surgery, what kind of health services were uh, did you use in New York, and what was available to you? When I was talking about top surgery, yeah, like did you was did you go to Cal and Lord? Did you you know what did you make use of for? Yeah, I mean, I like for transitioning to take tea, I had to go to six months of therapy, so I went to the. Um, the center here in New York that was really awesome and I had like a really great therapist to talk to about this and then I went to Cal and Lord um, and that's where I got tea lessons on how to inject and um, it was the only option that I knew of at the time and I had a very long talk with my doctor at the time she's really great and um, you know got my letters from everybody and you know, I was like, listen, I don't want to go here in New York. I want to go in California. Is there a way that we can cover this with insurance? And she was like, no, you're kind of on your own. Um, and um, my best friend Nancy's mom, who is basically like my second mom, was a nurse. And she was like, you're not making any appointments anywhere until I like vet this doctor. And so when she like asked around and did her own research as a nurse, she was like, okay, this guy's okay. Like, I, if you're not going to tell your parents and I'm your parent for this, like, this is what you... I'm 100% behind you with Brownstein. And so I was like, okay, B says it's all right, so that, done, you know? And and that that was that was all I did was, like, have a conversation with Cal and Lord, talk to the therapist, talk to people, and then sort of without hesitation, I called up and made an appointment. And, you know, I sent them pictures of my chest, and, and then... The first time I met the doctor was the day before surgery when I had like a surgical consult. So it's like I literally was just like, this is what I'm going to do. Make the appointment, figure it out, figure out the money. And um, and then, then I was there. And there was like really no internalized process about it. I was like, this is it. There's the only options. This is what I'm doing. And then I'm going to go. And I think about that. and I'm like, God, I really did not think about anything I was just no consideration of any outcomes had no idea what would happen if it didn't go well had no savings account if anything went wrong nothing I had I had nothing just like hope Mm. Uh, but I think a lot of people at that time were also going with hope no I didn't really know anyone with like a savings account or whose insurance covered it or who didn't have to have fundraisers at the time or you know, and at that time, that's what you did. You know, you helped out your community. People were having benefits all the time. And so, you know, $5 here, $10 there, whatever you can give, you just did it. You took care of your community. And unfortunately, I think that's what's happening now. You know, we're going to all have to take care of each other again, which is like the reality of being a queer person. And now, okay, so you got your top surgery. You went back to New York. When did you start? cutting hair how did you get into hair so i quit my job quit the publishing job no wait yeah had top surgery in like 2005 and at the time i had been working dating a girl who was a hairstylist in park slope and i was like shampooing hair for extra money cleaning up for extra money and i was like oh this is awesome i hate working in an office 
I don't want to be at a desk. I want to like have hours that I can like be outside and see people and um and my girlfriend at the time was like why don't you just do hair you cut people's hair already I've been cutting people's hair on like on my porch you know and cut my own hair and I was like yeah but I can't afford who can afford hair school it's crazy and she was like you should just do it you're unhappy at your job like just do it and I was like I'm just gonna do it and I called my parents up and I was like I'm quitting my job I'm gonna apply for student loans I'm gonna work at the salon, I'm gonna work at the bars, I'm gonna hustle, and I'm gonna like figure this out. So I quit my job, went to hair school, took out a bunch of school loans, ran up about $50,000 in credit card debt. It was that much for hair school? No, it was like 25 grand. But to live well. Yeah, I, I actually hair school was like 15 grand and I took out 10 grand to live. And then I worked at, uh, the bars where you make no money and then I did freelance for the publishing company um reformatting college textbooks for the blind and visually impaired and the students that use them the professors um and and I'm having to file bankruptcy years later but that is another story um but yeah and I just I just did it and I got really lucky um I went to Aveda for her school and the person who came to kind of like um assessed me I competed for a full scholarship which I didn't get but um the head of education was like you should come work at a rojo after and I knew two queer people one was actually my therapist's girlfriend who worked at a rojo and another one was this woman who was like an amazing drag king who I knew for a really long time um who worked there and I was like okay if they're they're cool with these two people who have trans partners um, that I'm in. And I got a job 45 minutes after I graduated hair school at Rojo, and they worked there for like almost nine years. And had to teach everyone about like gender nonconforming people and how to address my clients and how to not address my clients. And you know, it was like a weird place to work, but they let me be who I was. So I got really lucky in all the things and like all of my worked all of my connections to all of, my, all of the ability, you know. So I got, I'm like really, really very fortunate, you know, to have built like a community of folks around me in New York. Mm-hmm. And wow, are you back working at Orojo now? No, I quit that spot. It was not a good place for me to be. Um, well, you were there a long time. I was there a long time. And I didn't like how things were being run. And it was very corporate and in many ways very straight um, and run by a cis, straight, sort of misogynist, racist man. Mm -hmm. So I was like, peace. Um, And then I did my own work for three, two to three years. Um, And then I had had known about Seagull for a really long time. And Seagull's owned by Sean Shore Thing, who's this like, beautiful, wonderful human, and Johanna Fateman from the band La Tigra, and it is a queer feminist salon space, and I had, like, really wanted to work for them for so, so, so long, but they had a very small space, and so they moved to a larger space and were able to take on more staff, and without a doubt, we had been courting each other for 10 years, almost, basically, and I was, like, done. I like, couldn't couldn't even believe that I was, like, working at an amazing queer salon that was, like, did not tolerate misogyny, did not tolerate racism or xenophobia or um, 
you know, transphobia. It was just like, we will not allow any shit to be said or done at our salon. And if there is a client who is behaving badly or saying any of these things, we will call them out literally at that moment. We will bar people from the salon. This is like a safe space. And I was like, oh my God, I love it here. So it was like amazing um, to like be a queer person working for a queer owned, you know, feminist and not in that like white social justice people um, zone, but like a true like walk the talk kind of space. So it's awesome. Well, that was an amazing story. Um, story. No, it was good. Um, I I guess my final question for you is, um, you know, we're living uh, during a very challenging time, and uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of new sort of um, well, they're not new, but trans people are facing a lot of the brunt of of that right now and i'm just wondering as someone who is you know you're a native new yorker throughout your life you've really been able to like build communities and connect people and you know what what do you hope for for the future for trans folks and what do you you know what do you envision for your future here and I think, you know, it's a terrifying time right now. And so often it feels like there's not any hope as like, you know, queer and trans people are continuously murdered and forgotten about and ignored. And, you know, much like folks of color who are just basically being destroyed and targeted by this administration, you know, poor people, all of the folks are not like white, rich men. Um, you know, I really, really hope that we can come together as a community and fight against all of this. And in an ideal world, like people would have jobs, people would be able to have housing, people would be able to have an education. Um, and queer and trans people would not have to fear for their lives or not have health insurance or not be able to do the things that allow them to be who they are in this world. That is ideally the way it is, but I don't think it's gonna come without like a fight and without like coming together as a group of people to to take on this terrible administration who just wants to destroy all of us. You know, and my hope is like, I'm gonna be 40 in a couple of months, and I hope that by, I know it's like wishful thinking, but by then, you know, by the time I turn 40, for everyone to like have some security, but I know that it's gonna be a long fight. So I hope that I am not like destroyed in some sort of horrible thing. Um, and that, you know, I can see like the young trans women of color who are in my life be able to like, be older trans women of color who are successful in whatever ways they want to be and not have to worry that something will be taken away from them, you know. That's, that is my hope, to be an old, an old grandpa looking at my, like, little, little trans and queer babies, like, living their lives, you know. Kind of like your grandma. Kind of like my grandma. I am the Edith Small of the trans universe. Yeah, no. Yeah, you know, I just like, I'm 
in many ways a very idealistic person with the realization that the world is not perfect um but you know i'm hopeful you know especially for like our queer brethren is there anything that you wanted to add to this conversation that we had or anything that you wanted to ask me I mean, what is your ultimate goal with this project? What do you hope comes out of this project? Um, I mainly hope that people just have a record of all the different ways that trans people have survived in New York in 2017, in spite of many, many challenges. And I think that's really important. That's, that's just my, that's my only goal right now. And the, and we have clear audio <laughs> on all the interviews. Oh, that's those are excellent goals. I feel like my three year old niece will hopefully grow up and be able to like listen to this archive and like be able to like get a little picture of like who we were and like how we made it happen here. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Topher. Oh, thank you. Yeah.